were compassionate and kind and reached out to people that are, at least in the eyes of the world, unimportant and insignificant. If you're kind to the downtrodden, to the people that the world rejects, then you go to heaven. That's what some have taught. Uh, Roman Catholics and others will use this verse to teach salvation is by works. So how, how do you answer that question? Somebody, You could be evangelizing somebody and they could say, well, the Bible says how you treat somebody that the world thinks is uh, weird or awkward or the least to be loved. If you love that kind of person, then you're going to go to heaven. If you just read just this passage in isolation, then yes, it would it would teach that. But we understand verses in the Bible not in isolation, but in the whole realm of Scripture. And so first what we would say is, I think the main intention of this passage primarily is that Jesus is teaching his disciples. You can see that in chapter 24, verse 1 when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. He, he's mainly talking to his disciples before he leaves them, and I think is encouraging them to... ...people that they think are the most significant people, but even people that, that the world would not consider significant, that they're not to carry favor just with important people, but even the unimportant people. I think that's the context. But then secondly, there are so many verses, you know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace we're saved through faith. This is not of ourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Uh, one verse I like to share when I'm evangelizing, especially with cults, is Romans 4, 5, and I'll ask them, how are we justified, or how, how are we saved? Are we saved? Does God save the godly or the ungodly? And usually they would say, well, God saves the godly. And then Romans 4 or 5 says that God justifies the ungodly, not by works. So the Bible is clear that we're not saved by works. But Ephesians 2, 8, 9 has another verse that follows it, which says where we've been newly created. We've been, we become his workmanship, created to do good works. So the Bible says that faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. And so if we never help somebody that's hungry or thirsty or a stranger that gets sick, or never help anybody that's in prison ever, if we never go beyond ourselves and never reach out to anybody, that that would demonstrate that we don't know Christ, that we're not saved. So this passage is not teaching salvation by works, but it's teaching if you are saved that there will be works in your life. Not works of religious rituals, but actually laying out your life for, for somebody else. That, that's how I would answer that question. And if you have questions about how I'm answering the question... This morning, feel free to raise your hand and, and ask, okay? Because we might not have time at the end. Now, I haven't ordered the, I haven't arranged these questions in any type of significance. I just wrote them down as I got them. 
and we'll seek to answer them. So again, Matthew 25, verses 43 to 46, in context of the whole Bible, is teaching that if you truly are saved, that's going to be demonstrated. And how you relate or treat in India, they would say, the untouchables, those people that culture and society may deem uh, terrible people. Uh, a second question was, and maybe this was coming from last week, I'm not sure, I wasn't here, from Matthew 19, verse 16, that whole passage about the rich young ruler, verses 16 all the way down to verse 26. I'm not going to read the whole passage but you're very familiar with it. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? So the question was basically, I think in two parts, was this man really sincere? And, and this question? And some commentators, since I've been studying the Bible, some commentators and some preachers say, yes, he was sincere, and some say no. He was not sincere. Now, we're going to go a little bit more in depth to that. But but secondly, the second question was, how, how does this square with John 6, 37? Look at John 6, 37. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So understanding that verse, then... What's happening here in Matthew nineteen sixteen and following? Because this man comes to Jesus and leaves without Jesus. Which, at least initially, seems to contradict John six thirty seven. So let me first deal with John six thirty seven. John six thirty seven. What a wonderful chapter, a section here, John six. This whole section thirty seven down to fifty eight is is really incredible. But basically, John six is is talking about election and the effectual call. John six thirty seven, and it says, "All that the Father gives me will come to me." That's talking about election. That is that the Father, you know, from eternity past. It chooses, Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5, chooses who he will elect, chooses who he were predestined, and gives them to his Son to save. That's what John 6.37 is saying. <coughs> and then also here, keep looking at John 6.37, because sometimes this can be misunderstood. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. I've heard well-meaning preachers say that anybody that comes to Jesus, that comes to God, God will never, ever, ever reject them. And they'll use that to teach against election. That this, the John 637b, the person that comes to God, that comes to Christ, God will never, ever cast out. Well, did Jesus in the gospel ever reject anybody? There were times, if you read the Gospels, he would, like like here in Matthew 19. But the problem is, in John 36, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. 
Then it says, and the one who comes to me. Well, that is further expanding on the first part of John 37. All that the Father gives me. Those that are elected and chosen by God and wooed by the Spirit of God, enlightened and regenerated and say, Jesus saved me. Yes, Jesus will save them and won't cast them out. John 6.37 is a great verse about election and the effectual call. And that's even why, why later in this passage you have verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Anybody the Father says, I'm, I want that person to be saved, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit will save them. Effectual, effective call and salvation by really by the Father and applied by the Holy Spirit and secured by Jesus Christ. Verse 44 of John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And remember, that's like somebody has a cast net. Do you guys know what a cast net is? When I was young, we'd go to the beach and take a net and put it in our mouth and then we'd spin around and cast it and catch little shiners to uh, small fish to fish with. Draws here is that idea of a net. It's that God pulls us, pulls us to Christ. It's talking again about that effectual call. So all that to say that John 6.37 is not saying that there's never not a time when somebody will physically, spatially, locally come in the presence of Jesus and talk to him about salvation and not be saved. John 6.37 is talking about election and effectual call. Not that, for example, if uh, a Pharisee or somebody like Judas or whoever, a Roman centurion or somebody that he was healing, it's not... John 6.37 is not saying anybody that's in the presence of Jesus and has questions that about salvation is uh, therefore going to be saved. John 6.37 can't be uh, applied that way. Again, it's talking about the eternal counsel of God, and then it's worked out practically by this person pursuing or calling on the name of Jesus. Matthew 19, the rich young ruler... Was he ever saved? Maybe, maybe not. That The passage just doesn't tell us, but he is curious about salvation. Now, was he sincere? Was he insincere? Really, the passage doesn't say. He fell down on his knee, and he says, you know, you're... What thing that I must do? Like, I can attain eternal life, and... Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one that is good. The passage doesn't really address his motivations, except I think in Mark it says he left extremely sad because he owned much what? Property. So the main idea of the passage is you have to read all the way down toward the end. It's basically about uh, greed. It's about money and loving money more than God. So when I look at this passage, I wouldn't 
try to press too much into his emotional state, he could be sincere and be sincerely wrong. So in Matthew 7, toward the end of that passage, right, this is in the last days, many would say, Lord, Lord, I cast out demons, I healed the sick, I did all these things. Were they sincere? I think so. I've met many sincere Roman Catholics, many sincere Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs, very sincere. And they're wrong. (laughs) So I think he was, in other words, I think he was consistent with what he believed. He just was wrong. (laughs) And so that's why Christ treated him the way that he did in order to wake him up. He needed to be awakened that there was something that really he lacked. He wasn't as good as he thought he was. And I think also in this passage is this idea that external acts of piety are not necessarily signs of salvation. Because if you look at verse 18, Jesus says, you know, the the second half of the Ten Commandments. And then this man in verse 20 says, all these things I've kept. So... What I'm saying is that to a degree, at least in his own mind, he's like that Pharisee in Luke 18, right? That compared to other people, I'm pretty good. And so Jesus then seeks to expose to him that, you know, you you actually are in love with money, right? The Ten Commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? They can be summed up with those two Two issues. Anyways, I'm kind of going on, on a tangent. So I, I hope that helps to, to understand. Was he sincere? He could have been very sincere, but he was wrong. But this passage is not primarily trying to get into his heart other than he was placing mammon, money, ahead of God and ahead of others. Now, there are many books on evangelism that will look at this passage and many sermons and get deep into his motivations. I would say uh, got to be a little bit careful about that. We can't go beyond what's here because we don't know him. <laughs> uh, but God, God does. A, another question is the deity of Christ, and especially in in regards of cults. How many times have you been sharing with maybe somebody from Jehovah Witnesses or they're Mormons, and they're turned to John? chapter 1, and say that the Bible itself talks about that Jesus was a God. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And oftentimes the claim will be when it says the word was God, there's no, if you look at verse 1, there's no definite article in front of the term God. So it's that Jesus was a God. You say he's God, the Bible says he's a God. Get your Bible knowledge right, is what what I've heard. And I know that that's what they were taught that by whatever class or school uh, person, that teacher that shared with them. 
But that's just a, a misunderstanding of the New Testament Greek language in a few different ways. The Greek would be enha lagas. Uh, that, very, that very last part there, the word was God. So let me say it this way. In New Testament Greek, there's actually not even a definite article. There's no indefinite article in Greek. You know how in English we can have A? There's no A in Greek. Because there's no indefinite article. In in reality, there's no definite article. You just have the article. Okay. Secondly, in New Testament Greek, and I think this can be true in English as well, there are many ways that a noun or even an adjective can be made definite. Like if it's the object of a preposition, if you have of, and then a word that comes after the of, that's often definite. Remember, context is what? The number one rule of hermeneutics is context is king. What is the second rule of hermeneutics? Context is keen. What is the third rule of hermeneutics? Context is keen. And so that's how you decide mainly if a noun is definite. If it has an article in front of it, certainly it's definite. But in Koine Greek, the article serves many functions. And so sometimes what can happen, just in terms of, even with some commentaries, is... Even one or two grammars, they can treat the Greek language like the English, like an English grammar. So the, the article and Greek becomes like the article, or the, the English understanding of the article becomes the Greek. You know, you, you can't do that. Uh, like even and in the Bible, in the New Testament, you have and, 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 kai, k-a-i. Well, that doesn't always mean the same as our English word kai. It can even be just, it can work sometimes as an adverb. So what I am seeing is if a cult, if a person from a cult begins to say, well, in John 1, 1, where it says a God, he really doesn't have any idea at all what he's talking about. And he doesn't know New Testament Greek at all. Okay, So the Greek language doesn't, truly have even a definite article. It has an article. There's no indefinite article. There is an article, and it makes things definite, but that's not true that there is an indefinite article at all. That is, that a word can be made definite in many different ways. So I hope that's clear. But even looking at this, John 1, 1, the word was God, I read to you the Greek at the beginning. It's en ha log. It's theos en ha logos. Would be the Greek. That is, it would be a word in. I mean, God in the word would be a very literal but awkward <laughs> translation for the English. Theos en ha logos. God in the word. But oftentimes, New Testament Greek. Sometimes Hebrew would do it. But New Testament Greek, if it wants to emphasize a word, it will put it out of order, and here it places it first. So actually, if there's a cult that says, you know, here in John 1, 1, it proves that Jesus is just a God because there's no article in front of theos, you can say, well, actually, the New Testament Greek puts theos first. 
in front of the word. In fact, it's saying the exact opposite of what that cult person said. That dear person is saying the exact opposite of God's intention in the word. This verse is saying that the word was God. It's making it very emphatic that the word was definitely God because it places Dios first. Furthermore, if a word, a noun, can be also be an adjective, but especially a noun, if it lacks the article, it's talking not so, so much about its identity. The article is often referred to as a identity marker. But if it lacks the article, it's talking about its essence. If you have a New Testament Greek noun, it lacks the article. Normally, it's talking about its essence. So if there is a dear person that's a Mormon or a witness, maybe, maybe a Muslim or a Sikh, maybe a Buddhist, and they're saying John 1.1, 1, 1, it says God was a word. One response to that would be actually in the New Testament Greek, Theos, God, comes first, making it very emphatic. And lacking an article, it's talking about its essence. That is, the word that became flesh, that very word, and its very essence was and is God. So it's saying the exact opposite of what you know, a person that may be part of a cult is saying to you. They've just been deceived. So I hope that's clear. Is that is that helpful? Or... There's another argument I've heard at times, and this is, I think, helpful in evangelism as we evangelize and share the gospel. You've probably encountered this from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So I've heard... Jesus Christ can't be God. He can't be the creator of the whole and sustainer of the whole universe because he's actually firstborn. He was, he was born. He was born first. He, he's one of many, right? And the Mormons, there, there's many gods. And if you're a good enough person, when you die, you too can become a god and have your own world and populate it. Right? That's actually Mormon theology. And sometimes they will use this verse right here, firstborn of all creation. But again, it's just a misunderstanding of New Testament Greek and the, the New Testament culture and not really understanding the Bible. So most, not all, but most people that are in a, in a cult know specific verses only. Only that verse and only a few things about that verse. They don't know the whole context. Normally. Some here and there, some have. But but normally, most do not. Because, first, the culture of firstborn is not primarily relating to chronological order, but it's primarily referring to preeminence and power and might and right and authority. Now, in context, you can just look at verse 16. Because it says, all things were created. Well, yeah, I've heard the answer. 
Yes, yes, Jesus created the earth, but he didn't create everything. Well, verse 16 says he created all things. And the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, macro, micro, the whole universe, Jesus created them. And his title is that he is firstborn in the sense of he is preeminent. He has all the rights and all the authorities. He is God the Son. But not only that, verse 16, all things, not just some things, all things have been created through him, but even for him, for his glory. But not only that, he holds all things together. And he's before everything. That's verse 17. Yes, Bridget. Yes. And that's, that's, is it in, in italics? Do you know? Is it in italics? I don't know. You know, it's, I'm reminded of end of Revelation adding to God's word. Uh, that's directly against the, what the text is seeking to emphasize. We'll see it later on today in Hebrews. You know, when the Spirit of God wants to emphasize something, it will repeat uh, a word or a few words or an image over and over and over again. And here you have either a pan or a pas, all, 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 before all things and, and all things and holds all things together. And it's all for him. And so all of that then and interprets firstborn. And verse 16 starts with the word for, or in Greek, gar. It's given an explanation of what verse 15 means. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 and 17. And it's important to have understanding of these things because the more you witness, people will ask these questions. But I would also say it's helpful if we know not just like the the counter. Like I, I've tried to give you just a little bit of a counter for John chapter 1, 1. In Colossians 1.15, it's better if you know what? John chapter 1. It's better if you know the whole book of Colossians. Because the, the, the cults don't do that. They don't know that. And so if you know that, all of that is going to inform your answer. And you can even ask them, have you read the book of Colossians, since you brought up, it's not to shame them, it's to shepherd them. Since you brought up Colossians 1.15, have you read the whole book of Colossians? And I have not found one person from a cult that said, yes, I've read the whole book of Colossians. They haven't. And so that you can help them and say, do you really want to read and study the Bible? Are you just on your mission? And many are just on their mission. And then you can, with humility and trying not to get angry, shepherd them and help them. Another question is, is infant baptism biblical? Is infant baptism biblical? This is not my question. Okay. And I didn't ask somebody to ask this question. <laughs> okay. This question is just, been given to me, is infant baptism biblical? Just maybe a, a background would be helpful to you. 
did you know that Lisa's mom, my mother-in-law, was baptized as an infant, and I don't think was has been baptized by by immersion. Uh, I'm sure not to say I've had a lot of interaction with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that are truly are saved and have never been uh, immersed, baptized as an adult. When I was in India, there was a church called Kolhapur, which means city of the wolf, Kolhapur. There was a church, a Presbyterian church, and once a month I would go there and, and preach. And they were, they were Presbyterian, and they believed in infant baptism. And I was sitting there one time, and they had their infant baptism service. And as they're having the people lined up in line with their babies, they said, Brother Tom, please, please come down and help us with the infant baptism. <laughs> you know, I'm Baptist. So I'm like, what? what? What do I do, Lord? I'm not sure what, what you know, what do I do? And there was uh, over 1,000 members of this church, and they're all there. So I was like, oh, and it was packed. It's like, Lord, what? Why should I do in this situation? No! Ichabob! No, no I, I didn't do that. I, I went down, and I told the pastor, Sumadre, I don't know if you remember him, and said, Brother, I, it's my conviction that the Bible doesn't teach infant baptism. Uh, I'm not going to baptize the babies. I will pray for the parents and their baby's salvation. Okay. <laughs> okay, yes, that's fine. And after that, they didn't ask me to <laughs> come down again. Uh, very kind uh, pastors and uh, kind men. So that's my interaction with uh, infant baptism, just so you know. I'm not seeking to attack any uh, personally a person that would believe in that. We're going to get into it in just a few moments, but have you ever heard the debate between R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur on infant baptism? Yeah, I would recommend you get that, listen to that. So Presbyterians, not just Presbyterians, but not all, but most people that believe in infant baptism would also believe in believer's baptism. That is, if somebody repented of their sin and trusted Jesus Christ, they don't say to that person, you can't be baptized because we believe only in infant baptism. <laughs> they would still baptize, though it might be a sprinkling, they would still baptize that person. Okay. Now, there can be, there can be some people that can be extreme. A, a dear brother of mine, and he was Presbyterian, and he was going to Master of Seminary, but he told me one time that if you are baptized as an infant and then baptized later as an adult, that's blasphemy. And he was very passionate about it. Very passionate about it. In fact, just I'm just trying to give you a personal also and historical perspective. Do you know that Christians killed Christians during the Reformation era? That if you, not all the time, but some reform people that really believed in the five solas, they believed in particular redemption. But if you were baptized as an adult, they would drown you. They would murder you. Can you be a Christian and murder somebody else? Well, David murdered somebody else. David murdered many people. Uriah and Uriah's friends. Okay. So what I'm saying is, 
we have to be careful because we can take some of these issues and get really heated about them. And so we all just need to calm down. <laughs> what does the Bible say? And seek to obey the Bible and then treat others with love, patience, and understanding. Right? Like I've never gone to my mom, my mother-in-law, and said, Mom, you're in sin. You've got to get you know, baptized as, as an adult. So I... I'm seeking to be very careful with that. <laughs> okay. I have been asked uh, other questions. I think at times I've asked, she's asked questions and I've answered them for her about baptism, but I haven't tried to rebuke her for her sin. Okay. Love and peace and be careful because it can be a lack of, of knowledge, but also if you were born into a Presbyterian family, that's all you know, right? All you know is believer's baptism. <laughs> Maybe you haven't studied the other issue. So I've read many books by um, Petio Baptists, okay? Many books. So just a, a few things to understand then. Is infant baptism biblical? Well, first, there are no imperatives or there are no commands anywhere, baptize your infant. Nowhere, none, Zippo, none. Not in Greek, not, not in Akkadian, not, you know, nowhere. There's no commands at all. Second, there are no clear examples in Scripture of infant baptism. There are no clear examples in Scripture of infant baptism. Now, this is not what I'm saying. I'm saying it, but I'm quoting Baptist John Murray. John Murray, one of my favorite theologians, favorite commentators. His book, Redemption, Accomplished and Applied, is fantastic. So most of the people, most of the reformers that I love are, are Baptist. <laughs> okay? John MacArthur told R.C. Sproul during their debate, and they were uh, very close friends, John MacArthur, I, th- I think it was that debate, told him, R.C., you need to reform even more. You, you need to go all the way in the Reformation. And it was fun to see that John MacArthur and R.C. could joke, be serious, but also joke with one another and uh, about the issue. And it was done in a very good spirit. John Murray says there is no overt and proven instance of infant baptism. I'm getting this from his book on infant baptism. Uh, Burkhoff, also uh, Pedro-Baptist, says there's no direct evidence for the practice. Charles Hodge, right, a ma- you know, massive theologian, really for America, really for Christianity, great theological books. He has some really good commentaries, by the way. Okay, really good commentaries. He says this, in every case, I'm not saying this, this is Charles Hodge, who's a Pedro-Baptist. In every case, it was on the condition of a profession of faith for the recipient. That's Charles Hodge. B.B. Okay. B. Warfield. No express command to baptize infants in the New Testament. No express records of baptism of infants. No passages so stringently implying that we must infer from them that infants were baptized. So, again, these are the leading, at least of their time. And Murray just 
a decade ago or a decade and a half ago who all say that there's no clear-cut case of infants being baptized. Certainly no commands. No clear-cut case. There are some passages that that are used, and briefly we'll just go over these, because there could be some questions. Acts chapter uh, 16. Acts chapter 16. And I hope that this is helpful for you, gives you an understanding, at least of the issue, Acts. But also I'm hoping as we go through some of these issues, it helps you with Bible interpretation. How do you interpret Scripture? Because that's the issue. It's what does the Bible say? And Murray and Warfield and Hodge are saying, and Burkhoff, there's really... No commands, and the data is not actually obvious. They would all say, Murray says it, it's, um, I forgot the guy's name, Christ, uh, Brian Chapel, right, Christ-centered preaching, says it, they all say this, it's an argument from inference, not from the clear exegesis of the words in an obvious way, but inference. Basically, upon the continuity of the covenants and then upon the term household. Household. Those are the two pillars for believing that you should baptize infants. Because of the term households and because of the continuity, the relationship of continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Acts 16, verses 14 and 15. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So I would say... If you look at these two verses, it doesn't mention anything about the occupants of her household. It, you know, they could be what, whatever age. <laughs> Who knows? You know, like right now, I could say my household, I want them all baptized. Well, I don't have infants in my household. You know, my kids are 13. Lisa and I are getting a little bit older. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that there's not enough data here. You can't just... Assume household has to mean infants. You know, it, it depends upon the the age of <laughs> those people. So really, this though this passage is used for it, there's no data here that says that. Okay, so we don't know. Can't really use that verse. But there's another in the same passage. The the jailer. Verse 31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Well, you can see at the end of verse 34, having believed in God with his whole household. So, again, it doesn't say how old these people are. There are, is it 
paideia, I think, is a word for infants or very small children. That word is not here. But what is here is they believed in God. And there was even some rejoicing and they spoke the word of the Lord to him. There was understanding. But specifically and clearly, at the end of verse 34, having believed in God with his whole household. Now, what some will do, some will say in verse 31, it says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, not all petty Baptists would believe this, but some would. And if you are saved, then that will include, verse 31, that will include you and your household. Dutch Reformed, not necessarily theology, but the practice of that, how that can work out, can at times lead to, if this family has believed in Jesus, if the father has and the mother has, then the children are automatically saved. Maybe the Southern Baptists also believe that. I don't know. You know, right? If you're Baptist, hey, you're saved. (laughs) So in different ways, sin works itself out, assuming things. But that's not the best way to understand verse 31 with the Greek. It's believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And that's true for you and everybody that's in your house. If you believe in Jesus, you're going to be saved. And if your household believes in the same way, they also will be saved. That's a natural understanding of the Greek text. Uh, Acts 18.8 is another one. Acts 18.8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Okay. Um, again, believe in the Lord. Attached to that is with all his household. You, you can't separate these things. So it wasn't just that Crispus believed, Acts 18.8. Crispus believed in the Lord, and all his household believed. So if a small child believes in Jesus... Fine, you know, not just that he exists, but I can't save myself. Jesus, you must save me. Please save me, Lord. Forgive me. Fine. I, I don't think infants can do that. that. That's really not the issue here. But verse 8 is clear. That the, with all his household is a preposition that's modifying the phrase believed in the Lord. You, you can't separate that. What can happen, and we can all do this ourselves, we take the word household and read a lot of theology into that word that's not there and make that word the controlling motif of this verse. But that's not the controlling motif. It's with all his household. The with all is modifying believed in the Lord. Uh, You can even see this in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. And so the argument will be, see, look, Paul even says he baptized the house, the household. Everybody in the house was was baptized. That would include infants. The whole household 
if you take a lexicon, any of the main lexicon, whether it's from Mounts to Bauer, Adrinch, Ginker, and just look up the word household. It would not say this word. It's oikos, basically. Means infants. No, it means house or home and people that live there. Okay. So how do we understand 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16? Well, if you go to chapter 16, verse 15, it helps us. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 15. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the word. So this household that was baptized, however old or however young they are, they've devoted themselves to serve the body. So probably then can't be infants. It doesn't mean that there were no infants at the household. Absolutely. Could be. You know, there could be a servant girl there, and maybe she's married and she has a baby in her arms. See, household is a general term, and you can't impregnate it with all these different ideas. Here, when it's talking about the household, it's saying that these people that were baptized, that were saved and baptized, they were serving the saints of God. So they had enough understanding and enough will in order to devote themselves to serve the body of Christ. So all of that to say then that, and we don't have enough time, but at least in terms of household, you can't take the term household and say household means infants. Context determines what it means. And in none of the contexts that we saw when it talks about dad, when it talks about baptism, is infants required, or even necessarily assumed? But rather, throughout Scripture, it's repent, believe, be baptized. There is faith and understanding that is the requirement for baptism, and that's why John, Mary, and these other Baptist men say there's no command and there's no clear example. Because there actually are, there are really good um, Bible study Greek theologians and exegetes. So if they studied the word, then they say, yeah, we can't press it into those passages. We have to argue from inference. And maybe at a different time we can talk about it. So they would argue maybe from Colossians 2, uh, 11 and 12. So they would argue that Baptism has replaced circumcision. You circumcise infants, and so now you baptize infants. But we don't have the time to get into that. We can talk about that later. So if you have any questions, you can ask me afterwards. I hope that helps some. I hope that was beneficial. I trust God will make his word more clear to you. There was one question, just very quickly, if it helps, because time is is going, and that was about the Roman Catholic Church. Um, can you be Roman Catholic and be saved? 
You cannot believe Roman Catholic doctrine and be saved. No. You cannot. The Roman Catholic Church is a cult. It's probably the world's largest cult. It's very, very, very satanic. It hates Jesus Christ. It does. So they teach that if you believe you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they teach very clearly that you are damned to hell. That's what they say in their theological books. They say you are cursed, like Galatians 1.6. Okay? They teach uh, human achievement, that you're saved by being a good person. Yes, by grace. Yes, by believing in Jesus. But by being a good person and going to Mass and be sure that you confess your sins to a, to, to a priest, and then maybe you get to go to purgatory. They, that, I, I don't mean the church now, but that church in the past has historically killed more Christians than probably the Muslims. Okay? They slaughtered thousands, hundreds of thousands of Christians, and it's been conveniently forgotten about. Okay? The Roman Catholic Church is a, a, an abomination. Okay? It's satanic. They don't worship God. They don't worship Jesus. They steal the glory of Jesus Christ. That is what John Owen would say was the chief flaw of the uh, era of the Roman Catholic Church because they add work salvation, because they add Mary and so forth, and the veneration of the saints. So, now, however, can you be... A Christian and be in the Roman Catholic Church? Yes, I've known people that are saved, that are true born-again believers that are in the Roman Catholic Church. That when I question them, they, their gospel is clear. That's how they grew up. It's, they, they've rejected that. They know that Jesus, you only say about grace and faith alone in Christ alone, and that's it. And they say that's what they, they don't believe any of the other rubbish. But culturally, it's very hard for them to leave. Most of these people have been people in India. And so there can be, at least in India, this, well, I'm not going to go to a Hindu temple. I'm not going to go to a Muslim mosque. So then where do they go? They go to a, a Catholic church. So I've encouraged some of my Catholic friends to you know, find a different church or, or plant a church. Otherwise, you're not going to grow like you should or could grow. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is clear. Lord, I pray that you would make all that I said clear and helpful to these dear people, Lord, that they might grow in the faith and knowledge of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your love and faithfulness to us. And Lord, we do pray for all those that are part of these cults, Lord. We pray that you would save them and bring them to true knowledge of Christ. Lord, I'm not more righteous than any of them. I'm probably less righteous, Lord, truly. But by your grace, Lord, in Christ, you have saved me. Save them, Lord, we pray. We thank you, Lord, for Christ's sake. Amen.